Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that we're going to be together now for a couple of hours. I hope your day's been going well. As you know, I don't have to tell you, it is Friday, and it looks uh, quite sunny where, from where I'm sitting, and I'm looking forward to a weekend with slightly warmer weather in Minnesota. When it starts to get uh, warm, uh, everybody's personality changes for the better. Well, I should just speak for myself. All right, we're going to have a great hour. Uh, Dr. Daniel Taylor is in studio uh, he's written a book called The Skeptical Believer. Oh, this is a fun book. We're going to have uh, a lot of opportunities for questions today. So if you uh, have a question at any point or if you need a point a point clarified at any time, you can send me a text message. You know the drill. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. And we come back. We're going to discuss The Skeptical Believ- Believer with Dr. Daniel Taylor. Be right back. We all love getting something for free. Here's something that's free that you can really use. It's the free Faith Radio app. You can use the app to listen to the live stream, access program podcasts, and stay informed with all the latest contests and events today. All you have to do is download the free Faith Radio app in iTunes or Google Play. Just search for Faith Radio, download the app, and enjoy Faith Radio wherever you go. Download the free Faith Radio app and start listening today. God is waiting to give you wisdom. You just have to ask. So you say, God, I need wisdom. And I pray and I ask. Then I read the Bible. I read this book. And then I wait. And at the right time, maybe not immediately, at the right time, God will put that idea in my mind. And I'll go, wow, that's an inspiration. That's what I need to do. Fuel for a deep and active faith. Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Daniel Taylor is in studio, Professor Emeritus from Bethel University, Bethel College University? Still University. Still University, yeah. And uh, author of the book, The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories to Your Inner Atheist. I know that's got your attention. Um, Daniel, let's start. First of all, hello. Hello. Nice to have Glad you. Glad to be here. Nice to have you back. You were here not that long ago, and I couldn't wait to have you come back. You said in your book, in your opening um, part, you talk about being a skeptical believer. Is that acceptable to God? Well, we have some evidence that it is. Uh, Maybe the most well-known story is the man who comes to Jesus with his son and says, if you can heal him, please do. And Jesus says, if? What's this if question? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, All things are possible for those who believe, I think is... I don't have a text in front of me. And he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. And uh, everybody, not everybody, but many people are familiar with that story. And it seems to me that it's crucial that Jesus doesn't send him away because he refers to his unbelief. What's he do? He heals his son. So 
I think God understands the human condition better than human beings do. And he understands um, not just our flaws, but just our limitations in understanding the reality he's created fully. So um, doubts about what's the nature of that reality and what to do about it are things I think uh, God accepts in us. What I don't think he accepts so readily is paralysis or passivity or indifference uh, because of those doubts. Mm, That's interesting. Uh, I'd like you to say more about that. Well, I think God uh, is very open to our questions. Okay. And I think you can be a, a, a Christian and a person of faith with intense questions and lifelong questions and an ever-growing series of questions um, and still be at the center of faith. Um, but if, if, that be, if that becomes your defining quality... I am the one who questions, and that's what defines me, then that tends to lead to, as I say, paralysis of action. So questions with commitment, I once wrote another book called um, The Reflective Christian and the Risk of Commitment was the subtitle. Myth of Certainty was the title. Um, um, the commitment part is crucial. So, I, you know, the metaphor, one of the metaphors I re- return to for faith is like a marriage, uh, commitment to your marriage um, doesn't mean you won't have lots of things to work out in your marriage mm-hmm. and, and some things that, you know, are difficult, but the key is the commitment. So I think the faith story is similar to that. We were chatting before the show, uh, Daniel, and we, I, my question was, do you think there's a lot of people when they come to faith, they don't know much of anything of the Bible, but they've made a profession of faith, they have uh, turned their life over to Christ, and they look at the Bible and they say, starting now, I'm going to believe everything in that book. I don't know what's in there yet, but I'm going to believe everything. Or do you start reading it and then start going, huh, this is interesting. How do I process this? Mm -hmm. Therefore, you then have a doubt, and then you take that doubt to God and start processing it with Him. I think both how we come to faith and how we live out our faith are as unique as our fingerprints. So there's not a single formula for how God finds you uh, or how you respond to that or how you live it out. Um, So one of my convictions um, is that uh, how people do faith, in a sense, is uh, determined in part by their personality. So there are people for whom many things are black and white, uh, they're true or they're untrue, and I want to. I'm going to affirm all the true things, or what, whatever kind of approach they might have to everything, from picking out what to wear in the morning to what to order in a restaurant, um, to their political views. And those people might come to faith and live out of faith that is just has lots of certainty in it, whereas someone else is uh, has a whole different cast of mind and they, and they live it differently. I, I do make a distinction between certainty and certitude. Certainty is a state of knowing, basically means no possibility of being wrong. Um, and I think on important, the more important issues in life, there isn't no possibility of being wrong very often. Uh, certitude is the psychological state of having no doubts. So 
um, I've run into lots of people in my life who had certitude, uh, who I didn't think probably had certainty, even though they <laughs> felt certain that they did. Mm-hmm. This is a very interesting um, distinction between certainty, so there's no possibility of being wrong, and certitude, which is the psychological state of having no doubts. So when we are pursuing faith and we're growing and being discipled in God's word, do we get to a point where we have certainty, where we have no possibility of being wrong when it comes to uh, understanding what Christ did on the cross for our sins? We've been, we've confessed them, we're forgiven, and we have no possibility of being wrong on that. Well, I think um, we can have... uh, a word, another word that I, I am more comfortable with is assurance. I like that word too. I think we can have assurance about certain things mm-hmm. um, that give us peace of mind and joy and all sorts of things, but it's not the same as certainty, and I don't think certainty is required or even expected um, for the most part. So, And we also can have assurance about things that we can't necessarily explain some people are are bothered if they can't defend their faith in rationalistic terms and defeat every argument that comes their way. And there's lots of arguments that come out against faith in our culture. Um, I don't think you have to be gifted. Uh, I don't think you have to be a gifted apologist to be a committed Christian or a committed person of faith. Um, and that's why I tend to think of faith as a story more than as a set of propositions that you salute, a story that you've been called into as a character to, to, to live in that story as a character, which, I, which doesn't require you to be brilliant or very well educated or, you know, a great debater or anything like that. It just requires you to be a faithful character. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself over your years of teaching the Bible that you have said, I don't know how to answer that one? Well, let me first say that I was a lit professor. Yeah. So I didn't teach, they didn't trust me and they were right not to trust me to (laughs) to teach the Bible. And my usual line is that lit professors are by nature heretics. So don't, don't believe us when we start pontificating about theology. Okay. All right. Um, So what was the question? (laughs) The question was when you are, when you are sharing scripture and yeah. the Bible with people yeah. on a one-on-one basis or in a yeah. small group, yeah. and somebody has a question, right. uh, did you ever find yourself saying, oh, I'm not sure how to answer oh, that Oh, I one. say that a lot. Okay. I certainly say it to myself. And, um, you know, I, I in the book, uh, the Skeptical Believer book, I talk about kinds of answers and kinds of questions and certain questions uh, you need to ask yourself what kind of answer is a good answer to this particular question. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have a list of kinds of question, or kinds of answers, like there's definitive answers, there's persuasive answers, there's uh, speculative answers, and there are bad answers. And so not every question uh, calls for the same kind of response. And a lot of questions I would say, I don't, I simply don't know. And mm-hmm. other, and it, it, for some of them, I would say other people do. Let's find that person. And then there are certain kinds of questions that I don't think anyone has the definitive answer to that question. For instance, why is there? Uh, why did a good God create a world that, in which there can be so much evil? 
I mean, that's the old, well, one of the oldest questions. It's the question of Job. Mm-hmm. And we wrestle with it. And I've heard, you know, really helpful answers to that. But I haven't heard any answer that made me think, oh, well, that's been answered. Now I don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Dr. Daniel Taylor is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We're going to continue to talk about uh, 12 assertions regarding faith and doubt. His book is called The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories to Your Inner Atheist. We'll take a short break and be right back. Just so you know, if you've got a question or a comment, send me a text, 877-93-FAITH, 877-933-2484. Be right back. could be listening during the break because we do have some interesting discussions during the break and right during the break dr daniel taylor my guest said something interesting about the the there's no scripture verse that contradicts another one well this is an old principle uh of hermeneutics interpretation Mm -hmm. um that you use the bible to interpret the bible yes and it's based on uh a conviction that um, the entire Bible is God's word, and God doesn't is not in the habit of contradicting himself. Even though I think there might be some texts in the Gospels where one Jesus says, "Take your sandals with you when you go on this mission," and another one he says, "Don't take your sandals" or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people like to come up with certain things, but. Certainly on the level of any important assertion in the Bible, um, we've gotten the furthest by assuming that uh, they are all true, and it's our challenge to understand ones that seem to create tension. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about doubt. This is another uh, one of the 12 assertions. Doubt is not in itself automatically a good or bad thing. No, and I compare it to tolerance. You know, we live in an age when people say, oh, we have to be tolerant. Well, there are certain things that should be tolerated and there are certain things that shouldn't be tolerated. And uh, we got in trouble in Nazi Germany when certain things weren't tolerated. And so you don't know whether tolerance is a good thing. And the same until you know what's what's you're being asked to tolerate. And the same thing is true of doubt. Um, I, I am not someone who tries to convince anybody who has certitude about faith that they should be doubters at all. Um, and I'm also not interested particularly in trying to convince uh, convinced non-believers that they should believe. I'm interested in those people who uh, want to believe, have a history perhaps of believing, but also feel sort of plagued by doubt and wonder, is there a place in faith for me? Is there a place in the church for me? Or is there a place in God's heart for me? And I want to give them... In some ways, this book is both uh, meant to be a reassuring, also a kick in the pants. Mm-hmm. The reassuring part is there is a place for doubters. Uh, we're told explicitly to to be merciful toward doubters. I think it's in James, um, not to banish them. One of the great things that happened when Thomas was doubting the resurrection were two things, really. One. He chose to stay within the community to work out his doubts. 
And secondly, the community didn't kick him out. They kept him in the community so that he was in a context where Christ could appear to him and his doubts could be resolved. So, um, I might've been tempted to go to my condo in the Bahamas. Oh, I'm sure he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, uh, what, what's the, the Christian tradition is that he went to India and died yeah. a martyr. Yeah. So here it's really a bum rap for doubting Thomas. He's the guy who said before the, uh, Passover, let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. Mm-hmm. So he was a gutsy guy. Yeah, all in. He just, he's like, hum, he was human mm-hmm. and he, he found it hard to believe that, you know, I've seen him dead and you're telling me now he's alive. I certainly understand that. Right. And uh, once, once you know, once he was, his questions were responded to, he gave his life to spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. So hats off to Doubting Thomas. Yeah. All right, Daniel, how about this? God is okay with our questions. God also asks questions of us. In the past, I, I haven't seen it in a long time, but in the past, I started making a list of questions that are asked in Scripture, and there are lots of them. But I think the two that, that uh, are most piercing for me is uh, Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Mm-hmm. Which is really, in some ways, the ultimate question that the universe asks us. And uh, a second question from Jesus, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I command? <laughs> it's like wow, yeah, wow. You know, both of those. Right. Are, that second one, uh, I think I have a good answer and the and the right answer to the first question. Uh, you know, you're, which is the answer that Scripture gives. You're the Messiah, Son of God. Um, the second one, why this gap between saying that you believe in me and yet acting the way you do? That that's more unsettling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no kidding. All right, um, let's talk about the the world leak. You're going to have to explain that to me. Three main leakage points. Um, presuppositions, logical reasoning, assessing the strength and significance of evidence. That's a heady one. Uh, which one is that? Number four. Okay. And that those are all related to the assertion, all explanations of the world leak. And that's actually was part of the motivation for that other book I refer to, The Myth of Certainty, um, secular intellectualism will give you the idea um, that, especially, you know, sort of based on scientific rationalism, that they have certainty and religious people only have wishful thinking. Um, my counter-assertion is that all explanations of the world uh, are unprovable. Even for the person who says, I only, I'm only going to believe what you prove to me, for instance, through reason or through scientific uh, testing, uh, can't prove that that limited approach exhausts reality. Right? So you're going to believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and that, you know, these molecules, these atoms make up this molecule and all that kind of thing. But you can't prove that the scientific method... Um, is the only uh, way to understand what's real in, in the world or in, you know, in the universe. Mm-hmm. So it, it uh, basically is, is saying, um, uh, I only believe what my method allows me to believe, which is sort of like 
saying, "You're supposed. I'm going to build a house, and the only tool I need is a hammer. I don't need any other tool except my scientific method yeah, hammer. Don't invite me to your house. All right. So, yeah. so every. I think this is. I don't think you can prove in the certainty way of no possibility of being wrong that God exists or that God is who He says He is. Um, but I also don't think you can prove the opposite. You know that there is no God. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's any explanation of the world that's not contestable. Right. And and the, when I say the three main leakage points are presuppositions, logical reasoning, and assessing the strength and significance of evidence. By presuppositions, I mean where do you what do you accept without ever even offering evidence for it or proving it? For instance, a scientific materialist would have to just assumes that miracles are impossible and are. Um, and, and since they can't be demonstrated according to the scientific method, in their view, uh, we, I, we have proven that they're, that they're impossible. No, you haven't proven that at all. You right. just said that your method doesn't account for them. Well, so that's a presupposition. Have, yeah, scientists have to be able to replicate something in order to analyze it. And there's no miracle that, there's no scientist that can verify or discredit a miracle. As you say, because each miracle is unique. Right. Yeah. And then logical reasoning, there's just a whole category of reasoning flaws that the Greeks pointed out 2,000, 2,500 years ago. And even sophisticated thinkers make those reasoning flaws. And then another one is how do we assess evidence? You know, what counts as evidence? So, again, a materialist only wants to count these things that respond to my method as evidence they don't, want, they don't want to count the testimony of somebody who maybe has had an experience with God because that's just too subjective and we can't test it, so that doesn't count. Uh, I mean, it's like going to war. Um, you know, what, what is, you know, here are reasons we should go to war, here are reasons that we shouldn't. How do we weigh, what, what significance do we give to this? What significance do we give, you know, for instance, this dictator is killing hundreds of thousands of his own people. Is that enough reason for us to risk our people and our, to stop that? Are we fighting evil or are we doing it just to preserve oil wells or something? You know, that's how you assess that is, is going to um, determine how you act. And the same is true, I think, in things of faith. So for me, a key element, because I don't believe in that we can um, prove in, a, in that kind of a certain way, even our faith assertions, I think there's an element of risk in anything valuable, in affirming anything of value. So, and we accept this in so many areas. We accept it in the stock market, we accept investments, we accept it in love, in relationships, in marriage. Every marriage is risky, having kids is risky. Why should we not expect there to be risk involved when it comes to things of God? All right, Dr. Daniel Taylor is my guest. His book is called The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories of Your to Your Inner Atheist. That's uh, the title of the book. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, lots more with Dr. Taylor. Again, if you have questions or comments, you can send text to 877-93-FAITH, 877-93-FAITH. Thanks for being with me today. I'll be right back. On Faith Radio.
Welcome back to the show. Dr. Daniel Taylor is with me here in studio, and I'm enjoying this conversation with him. His book is The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories to Your Inner Atheist. Because don't we all have some doubts from time to time? So, uh, Daniel, let's look at the most important decisions in life. And the actions that flow from them are made in the light of imperfect knowledge. Yeah, um, obviously the Bible is a, is a tremendous, uh, is one of, is God's great blessing to us. I'd say a Bible and the incarnation between them are, you know, these great gifts to us to help us know who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to do, answer the life's big, big and what happens to us when we die, life's big questions. Um, but we are still, uh, uh, you can affirm and I'm certainly not going to argue with you the absolute adequacy of everything the Bible says and still be stuck with yourself as an imperfect understander of that perfect text. So um, I think in every important decision we make in life, and again, I will say, and that includes faith decisions, we wish we knew more. Or what do I do? You know, maybe my, I don't have any question that God wants me to do something in this situation, but what is it? Like I have my son right now and his wife are making a big decision about taking a job in, they live here locally in Minnesota in Northern Alabama. And I've been in that situation in the past. It's agonizing, you know, here there's good things about going. There's great things about staying. How do we make this decision? So we, you know, we wish we, we knew more. Um, when we get married, we want assurance. This is the best person in the universe for me, but maybe I should wait. Maybe there's an even better fit, you know? So at some point you make a commit, you, you commit. Um, and, and we almost always, if it's an important decision, we commit despite not knowing enough. And that gets me back to this idea that there's risk involved and, you know, God risked making us, you know, it's, it's inherent, I think, in reality. God risked creating the world and creating us, and the incarnation is one huge risk, even though, you know, with our doctrine of foreknowledge, we assume God knew how it was going to turn out. So um, I don't think risk is an uh, enemy of faith at all. I think it's, in fact, I, th- you know, I, I assert that, that, um, Doubt is more compatible with faith than certainty is. If you're certain of something, you don't need faith because it's 2 plus 2 equals 4. If you have doubts or questions or feel like, I don't really know absolutely everything I would like to know, then uh, faith, which is commitment despite uncertainty, um, is necessary. So I I think of faith and doubt as very much um, allies not as enemies. All right, let's move uh, to this point. The life of faith is compatible with doubt and intense questioning. I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I think like you said earlier, it's not compatible with paralysis, indifference, or self-indulgence. What does self-indulgence mean in this case? Um, well, you... you it's not uncommon to see people who think of themselves as heroic doubters. In other words, uh, and, and our modern ethos certainly asserts the uh, heroism of that, of I question everything. Um, 
you know, I'm free, I think freely, I do freely. And so I've often, and I probably went through this myself in my youth, that my doubts are some, somehow a kind of justification of my intelligence or my education. And I feel sorry for these people who have, quote unquote, simple faith or unreflective faith. Um, so I think if, if you take on doubt as your defining, as I said before, as your defining quality, I am the great doubter, uh, that attitude is not compatible with faith, whereas questioning is. Um, so I think um, this sort of justifying not, action, not acting in this story, you know, you're a character in a story, characters have to say their lines, characters do things. Uh, a passive character kills a story. You know, and I've read a few novels where the characters are just too passive. I'm not that interested in them. So, and a passive Christian or a paralyzed Christian or, a, you know, someone who defines themselves by what they don't believe or can't believe rather than by what they do um, is going to live a weakened, at the least a weakened version of the Christian story. All right, this next one, Daniel, kind of interesting. Religious faith can be defended, including rationality, but its truthfulness cannot be proven. The same is true of all significant world views. Yeah, I, I'm not, uh, and it's a point I make maybe too many times in this book, I'm not against reason at all. I think reason is a great gift from God, too. I am simply for... Um, reason recognizing its limits, recognizing what it's good at and where it stops short, you know, or can't, can't uh, help us that much. Um, and I, as I said before, I think that's true of all, all human views. So I, I, when I was young, especially, I read a lot of apologetics, and most of it was somewhat rationalistic. And it wasn't later until later in life that I started reading people who moved really beyond this enlightenment view that uh, reason is the determiner. And, I mean, this is a big issue for the church today because all through my growing up, we were fighting modernist skepticism, intellectual skepticism, by saying we can prove these things or we can fight back just as intellectually with just as much intellectual firepower as you can and then postmodernism came along, and the, and they basically set a plague on both your houses. Mm-hmm. We we don't even care about whether we don't think you can prove anything. Everything's a story. So, um, you know, actually, my you know, I think what's more effective these days than um, proof is testimony. And it's always been the case, really. It's in the Bible. It's throughout church history. It was certainly in the little churches I went to as a kid. It's very powerful when somebody on a Wednesday night, especially if he was just the local local auto mechanic, got up and told the story of what God was doing in his life. And why is that? Why is story so central? Uh, Because story uh, approaches us as whole persons. Story can and often does appeal to the intellect, but it appeals to the emotions. It appeals to the will it appeals to even the body. We respond physically to stories. Um, so God chose this method to communicate himself to his creation. Essentially, the, 
Bible's a big storybook. It has propositions in it, um, but those even those propositions take place within a story. So the Ten Commandments, you know, why these ten? The rabbis tell us there are 613 commandments, and I... No, I had a rabbi tell me once that he was stopped by a policeman because he was speeding. The policeman said, don't you believe in the law? And he slapped his forehead and said, don't I believe in the law? I believe there are 613 laws, and I'm trying to keep every one of them. Um, But the Ten Commandments comes in the midst of the Exodus story. What did they need at that time? They they were surrounded by uh, pagans, pagan uh, gods. So they needed to be told there's only one God. They were living in community, in tent to tent, and multiple generations within a tent. So they needed to know not to covet, not to look at the other man's wife, you know, to honor their father and mother who were in the tent with them. These were the commandments. These were the assertions they needed within that story. Mm. So the, the story gives flesh to the assertion which can become, you know, and that's what legalism, it makes the assertions, the absolutes, and they're, they're abstract, and they're often sort of battering. And the story uh, helps us understand what the assertion means. But we also need the assertions because as we interpret the stories, the assertions, the principles, the commandments, tell us, uh, give us guidance in how to interpret the story. Daniel, let me jump on a question came in from a listener. How does prayer interact with doubt? What is the role of prayer for someone that struggles with doubt? Well, I think prayer is essential in those circumstances. What is prayer? I mean, prayer is many things, but it's a reaching out to God to help. Uh, I mean, that's part of prayer is the petition part. Help me. Help me understand. I mean, one of the uh, things I learned from a, another writer is when you have questions about God, ask God about them. In other words, instead of saying, well, let me think about this or let me th- pick up Dan Taylor's book and he'll explain it to me. You say, God, help me as the man did in talking to Jesus, help my unbelief or help me with this question or help me see that this doesn't have to be as important a question as I'm making it. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thing I ask people to consider is, is a good answer or a kind of perfect answer to your question necessary for you to continue to believe? And I think with the vast majority of the doubt questions we have, we don't have to have a good answer to that question in order to still stay in the story as a committed person. And God may never give us uh, an answer that's, that satisfies us psychologically. But, and, and I think in some of our questions, he, he, he is saying, uh, I don't necessarily want you to know the answer to that question. You know, what's the relationship between free will and predestination, for instance? You think this is a great question and it can be answered and you'll beat each other over the head with your answers. And I, and perhaps God is saying to us, you haven't even framed that question correctly. That's not, uh, th- this either or that you're set up is a false either or. And I think we often, often do that. I was thinking of your illustration of the auto mechanic. When he gets up and tells his story, what I find exciting and compelling about that is the transformation of a person who is dead in sin to alive in Christ. So God did something powerful in this person's life. That's why that story is so exciting to hear. And it's why it's often emotional. Mm -hmm. 
emotional for the teller and emotional for the hearer. And it's why we are moved closer, and the the unbeliever is more likely moved closer toward entertaining the idea that God exists and is calling him or her because of a powerful story. Um, so I think testifying is a testimony, is a a powerful tool that the church has largely uh, moved away from. In the uh, churches I grew up in, there was always a time, Sunday nights or Wednesdays most often, for spontaneous testimony. Mm. And nobody schedules testimony in church anymore, at least not the ones I go to. Mm-hmm. And they are powerful. Yeah. And sometimes when I hear them, I walk away going, okay, that was my favorite part of the service. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Is it Better so than the preacher's careful analysis of a text. I better not say that because my <laughs> preachers I know might be listening. All right, let me take a little break, Dr. My dad was a preacher. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay. Dr. Daniel Taylor is my guest. His book is The Skeptical Believer, Telling Stories to Your Inner Atheist. We'll take a short break. Be right back. Daniel Taylor, Skeptical Believer is the name of his book. All right, Dan, let's jump into this thought. The manner in which we doubt and respond to doubt is greatly affected by our our personality and cast of mind. Soul weariness, the condition that results from being hyper-reflective about something of great value with no definitive way of coming to a certain conclusion and no requirement to do so. Yeah, well, I'm in that definition of soul weariness. I'm defining. I'm referring to myself. Okay. <laughs> um, and I would say it was more the self of my youth, uh, and I think I have moved past that to a certain extent. But there are people, and uh, I mean, it has to do with this idea that our personalities affect how we approach everything, including faith, uh, whose minds are just hyperactive. You know, I sometimes. Talk, uh, think of it as people who are always turning over rocks on a walk and looking at the creepy crawly things underneath and saying, oh, oh, look at that. What's that? And, you know. and so, uh, and I'm very sympathetic to these persons because doubts can wear you out and uh, your mind can churn and churn and churn. It's like tires spinning in the snow bank in a Minnesota winter and never you never get anywhere. So um, I do believe that people get soul weary and, you know, it's how do you get out of that? Well, it's not all that different from what your mother used to say to you when you said you were bored, which you learned not to say. And she gets the chore jar and say, oh, you're bored here, pick in here and get a chore. Um, Being called to the story of faith uh, means, you know, you're committed. And there's all kinds of metaphors. You're a warrior, you're a voyager, you're on a pilgrimage, and there are things to do. And I think um, you get soul-weary when you uh, do less and uh, think more. And, and also when you require, when you have the requirement that I have to solve these things before I do anything, which I think is a huge mistake. 
I can only be a person of faith when I have the right answers for myself and to be able to give. And if I don't have the answers, then I, it's not honest, supposedly, to evangelize, for instance, or to worship or to fast or to do many of the things that we're called to do. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit more about skepticism. It's, you say it's a form of protection against believing too much. What well, does that mean? Yeah, my definition of skepticism is habitual, reflexive doubting. Okay. So doubts are misgivings about truth claims, and I use the word misgivings because I think they're, uh, a doubt is not a certainty. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain this isn't true right. or is true. Uh, I have misgivings about it. Well, if that becomes your habit, your habit of thought, and you just reflexively, when everybody claims anything to be true, it doesn't, not just things of faith, you know, if your first response is, I doubt that, or I question that, then you become a skeptic over time. Um, And skepticism is not automatically a good or bad thing. There are things we should be skeptical about. So... We do that all day long, don't we? Yeah. We're skeptical. It, it keeps you about, alive. Right. Yeah. So if you um, have no skepticism, you're a sucker for, you can be a sucker for anything, for every conspiracy theory and every sales pitch that comes down the road. On the other hand, uh, and that's where, you know, I have this title, skeptical believer, this concept. Uh, if you, um, if you don't have skepticism about your skepticism, then you have a hard time being a believer. And you need to be a believer in order to have meaning. You need to believe in something to have meaning. Because pure skepticism, which often verges to cynicism, it creates a desert. There's a kind of something uh, sterile about it. So skepticism keeps us from believing lies. Belief keeps us from failing to believe truths. So what what is your goal? Um... Do you want the maximum of truth or do you want the minimum of error? The skeptic wants the minimum of error. I'm not going to believe anything you can't prove. The believer wants the maximum of truth, which might mean that you're going to believe some things that will turn out not to be entirely true, including things about God. But believing, having a maximum of truth it builds a foundation, the best foundation for the possibility of meaning and significance mm-hmm. in life. Give me an example of what you mean by that about there are some things that you might end up believing about God that won't be true. I mean, there are certainly people who are young in their faith. Well, you, say, might, you might believe that um, God hates sin so much he's going to hate you, that he hates you. And, and you have a diminished, no, a diminished understanding of grace. Mm-hmm. You have a clear understanding of sin and your own sin uh, and God's righteousness, and you've heard lots of sermons on it, but if you have a diminished sense of grace... Uh, you're going to have trouble finding peace that God has genuinely forgiven you of your sins. So that would that would be uh, asserting a partial truth. That's just another one of my favorite things. Most heresies are partial truths. They're not completely 100% false, so they wouldn't be attractive. There's some truth into them, some truth in them. Um, but God's truth is usually balanced, is always balanced. You know, it's a whole truth, not a partial truth. And so... You can uh, believe a lot of partial things about God and about the life of faith that don't lead to a healthy, healthy, uh, healthy faith. And one of my, you know, 
assertions is that we should um, seek out the healthiest version of the Christian story that we can, not the most diseased. Because, of course, there's tremendous failure in the church and in our own lives and even lives of our heroes. Um, and we can focus on that or we can, and we can focus on not being able to prove God. Um, but there are, there are tremendously healthy understandings of the life of faith and they're modeled by people and we need to seek those models out and conform our own choices in life to those models. Mm-hmm. I know you want to encourage uh, people to think in, in a story because stories involve us as whole persons. Right. Intellect and emotions, will and spirit, and story encourages action. Right. Like I said before, passive characters are make bad stories. Mm-hmm. And story is um, the most e- e- efficacious form of communicating truth, especially now nowadays. Yeah, and, and of course we as, you know, more or less theologically conservative Christians believe in truth in a way that our world probably or absolutely does not. But part of truth is uh, things like paradox and mystery and ambiguity. And story is comfortable with those things, and God's story is comfortable with those things. So um, believing in truth doesn't tie you down to a highly rationalistic black and white uh statement of all the truths there's there's a tremendous amount of mystery of things we can't explain that we even know to be true feel to be true they are true to our experience but can you uh put down a syllogism that says this this and therefore that and prove it no there's a kind of a it's beyond and that's because it's beyond our reason our our calculating part of our reason and if it wasn't, we would we should be um, depressed. If we could, if we felt we fully understood God and God's ways in the world, that would make God so small that it would be depressing to follow such a small God. Mm-hmm. When I think of the um, a mind outside this world created this world, I start to think that well, I know God loves me and God died for my sins and God poured His grace out upon me and. He's written my name in the book of life, and it's the greatest news ever. And he will forgive me of all my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness, and I will, lead, I will follow him all the days of my life. Well, and, and, and the, reason what, that what you can, the reason that you can affirm that is because that's the story that's been passed down generation to generation, uh, you know, beginning maybe with Abraham, probably before, mm-hmm. even though Abraham gets the first story. Um, and some people were willing to die for that story, and it got taught to you. And so um, we should prize our storytellers. Daniel, this is, uh, it's, you bring up so many interesting points, and there, I know this is um, when you start talking about the fact that we will have doubts at some point in our life. I think that represents a lot of, Christians, where we start to wonder, where is God in this moment? You know, I've asked for this, and I haven't seen God show up. Did he hear my prayer? And the answer is, of course he did. Did he answer it in the way in which I wanted him to? Doesn't sound like he did. Did I pray correctly? Did I confess all known sins? Did I do... You start to have personal doubts about yourself as well, don't you? 
Well, it, I think if you don't have ongoing questions, at least about yourself and about your faith, your faith will probably uh, wither, or at least it'll kind of go comatose or into <laughs> hibernation or like whatever. Because um, faith is a living thing. The story is a living story. You're not just repeating the old, old story. You're also living it out. And because you live it out, it, the story changes. Mm-hmm. It's a unique, you have a unique, no other person is can be your character in this story. Thank goodness. And so you um, you live it with fear and trembling. Yeah. You live it out with fear and trembling. And that, it's not paralyzing fear. It's it's just, it's awe. You live it out with awe that I am, and, gra- and gratitude. I've been invited into the story. And I tell, especially young people who, who drift away, uh, if you think you found a better story, go for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this is a love story. You yeah. Just be sure your new story loves you back. Right. Dr. Daniel Taylor has been my guest. The Skeptical Believers, his book. Daniel, thanks for coming in. That's uh, my pleasure. It's been a fast hour. We'll uh, take a short break. We'll be right back with Hour 2. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.